three, two, one. The reality is you absolutely do not have to understand anyone in order for their experience to be valid, first of all, nor do you need to understand somebody in order to respect them. Skylar Baylar is an author, activist, life coach, and was the first transgender athlete to compete in any sport on an NCAA Division I men's team. By 15, he was one of the nation's top 20 15-year-old breaststrokers. By 17, he set a national age group record. He graduated from Harvard University studying cognitive neuroscience and evolutionary psychology. Schuyler documented his transition on social media, garnering a community of hundreds of thousands and consistently advocating for trans inclusion, body acceptance, and mental health awareness. Most recently, Schuyler released his first middle grade novel, Obi is Man Enough. Welcome to this guided storytelling session on Podcast Noor with Schuyler Baylar. Skylar, I'm so happy to have you on the pod today, a couple of days after Trans Day of Remembrance. How is your heart doing today after the last week? Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me here, Noor. Uh, I'm really excited to be here and chat with you. Um, as for my heart, I would say um, it's tired and also uh healing, if you will. I, I think that mm. um, Trans Day of Remembrance is always a, a heavy, a really heavy day. Uh, but I also saw a lot of people step in and take action. And I, I asked a bunch of people to participate in a campaign that I did. And a lot of people lovingly did. And um, and there was a lot of support. There's also a lot of hate. <laughs> um, but uh, it's always it's always um, a task to make sure that I'm paying attention to the support that exists to make sure that I can yeah. uh, hold myself in that kind of healing um, while also dealing with the hatred. Yeah, I mean, something I noticed that you do because you're so vocal about your journey on social media is that you do address the negativity or you do address the hate and then you do talk about the joy and the grief. So you, it feels like, very wholesome in the feelings that you're essentially tapping into and then sharing with other people. What is the intention of raising awareness or speaking to the negativity and how does that impact your personal healing journey? The intention is to, well, there's a couple intentions. The first is to share that this happens because a lot of people exist in echo chambers, right? Where they are only seeing the same things that they believe and what ends up happening in that space is we only see positivity if we affirm trans people. And that's great, right? I would I would love if that was how it was everywhere, but the problem is it's not. Um, and actually I even got a, a comment, um, one of many, but a comment yesterday that said, hey, thank you for sharing this. I exist mostly in positive LGBTQ plus spaces online and I don't I don't see that this actually happened. So thank you for reminding me that, that this is out there and it's something we need to fight against. Um, and so that, that's one of the reasons is I, I don't need to remind trans people that transphobia exists, but mm -hmm. for, the, for the people who are who are not trans and who are allies and watching to learn, um, I want them to know that this hatred still exists and that's why we have things like Trans Awareness Week, why Trans Day of Remembrance is a big deal. It's not just mm -hmm. something to be shoved to the side. So um, yeah, that's one of my main intentions. And the other more personal intention is to is to stand up 
strong in that hatred anyways, right? To prove to people that that hatred doesn't have to define me, that hatred doesn't have to um, be me, um, and it doesn't have to drag me down. I can stand up tall anyways. How do you, how do your insides feel towards it today compared to six or so years ago when you first started transitioning? My insides, that's a, that's a deep question. Um, when I first started transitioning, I think that these comments were difficult, but I, I actually don't know if they felt all that different from now because I think mm. that I had this understanding at the beginning that um, trolls were going to have their opinions and they were going to share them uh, ruthlessly, especially online. Uh, and it, it was the first, like, I don't know, month of having my account when somebody you know, commented on a post of mine and, and tore it down. They said, you'll never be a real man. You'll always be a woman. Like you're, you're so gross, whatever. They said all these terrible things. And, um, mm-hmm. and I remember reading it and I, and I kind of just, I was like, gosh, yep. People believe those things. And I had a bunch of other trans people who followed me who were like, Hey, Skylar, like we stand by you if you need anything. And I actually made a friend of mine that I'm still really good friends with now from that exact post. Cause he messaged me and he was like, Hey, this happens to people all the time. I know you're new here. Let me know if you need support. So the point, I guess, is what I'm trying to say is I think that I have learned and learned early on that there will always be people who disagree with me and who will share with me um, from a very cruel place uh, that, that they disagree with me um, and their opinions don't actually have to define my reality. Um, mm. I would say now... I actually am, it's kind of the reverse. I'm more tired now, I think, than I used to be. Uh, reason being that sometimes it feels a little hopeless. Sometimes I feel like it doesn't matter how many times I share the truth and the facts and the science. Um, there's a lot of systems in the country that are currently emboldening misinformation, right? The last administration being a primary example. Um, there's a lot of systems that are emboldening hatred, white supremacy, Right now, the, the government in the U.S. is still doing that. We you know, saw that very recently with some rulings in a court, right? So I think it's heavy, right? And it gets heavier sometimes. And I think right now I'm feeling especially heavy. Mm. Let's take a step outside of the internet bubble, outside of the systemic bubble. And I want to connect with little Skylar. You mentioned the the word healing, and that's something that has been um, a word that I'm very intimate with these days and more mindful of. And a huge part of that journey is connecting with and reconnecting with my younger self or my inner child. And you, because you have such a unique experience with your identity, must have, I would assume, have gotten very close to little Skylar or have had like hard conversations with little Skylar or have had to give them compassion and grace for their truth and their experience. Can you tell me a little bit about what little Skylar was or what younger Skylar was like? And when I ask you that, what age comes to mind? Yeah, I I think about this a lot, actually. And when I was coming out, I thought about like when I was coming into myself, actually, I'll say um, 
especially as a, as a man and, and as my, my, my transgender identity sort of emerged uh, and I became more aware of it, I thought a lot about uh, an eight-year-old Skylar. Um, mm-hmm. When I was eight, nine, and ten, uh, I had very short hair. I dressed only in boys' clothes. A lot of people thought that I was a boy. Actually, most people who met me would, would never even question whether or not I was a boy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I felt very aligned with myself at that time. I felt very comfortable in my body. I felt very comfortable in how I dressed. I felt just, I, I can remember this, this pure joy that I felt at, at, at certain times in my childhood. Um, Essentially pre-puberty. Exactly. Yeah. Um, And and pre the discovery of gender roles, I think, uh, to a degree, um, because what was the conversation about gender in your household at the time? Like what did it ever come up? It it did. Um, And when I say pre the discovery of pre gender roles, I think more what I mean is before society was like, okay, now it's time to be a real girl. You know, now it's time to be a real woman, um, which is usually happening around puberty. Growing up, my parents were very lenient. They're they're very liberal in many ways, and they're very lenient. I would say with with gender roles at home, in that they um, they let me dress however I liked. Um, they let me play with whatever I like. My mom is very much about like empowerment of women, and and you know girls are just as good as boys, if not better. <laughs> um, and so I grew up with a lot of that sort of like um, empowerment of my girlhood. Uh, and of my, of my, you know, soon to be, but never was womanhood. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. and I, excuse me. Um, I think that that allowed me a range of girlhood that was far more accessible to me than I think the, than it would have been had I been put in a, in a box. Um, there were gender roles at times. Uh, some of the most stressful times of my childhood were fancy events. If we had to go to a recital or to my dad's work event or to a mom work event, then I had to wear a dress. Um, and that was the worst thing ever. I threw a fit every single time. It would take three hours to leave the house because I'd just cry and cry. Do you remember why it felt that way? It's interesting. I had those conversations recently with, with actually with my girlfriend and she was like, you know, what awareness did you have then? Yeah. I I don't know. I, I remember it just feeling like the world was ending. Like it was the worst thing in the world. I have such a specific memory of being in my parents' bedroom and my mom angrily saying, you need to put this on. We have to go. Come on, just do it, Skylar. Um, and me just being like, I can't. Like, I really can't. And I think there was a lot of things. There was the fear of what it would feel like to see myself in that and how how just, like, it, it's interesting. There's a feeling coming back now as I think about it, which is it's this feeling of, of a disgust, of, of not being able to see myself in the mirror anymore. Um, so that was a feeling. Was it less about the dress and more about trying to see yourself, like represented to yourself? Absolutely. I mean, it was about the gender that was ascribed to that dress, right? That the dress was told to me as woman and up until, so let's say, you know, I'm living my life as a, I don't know, fourth grader or third grader and I'm presenting pretty much only as male and I'm read that way in a lot of ways. And then, um, then we come to 5 PM and it's time for Skylar to put on a dress. It basically is Skylar exiting himself. Um, not because Mm. the dress has to equal woman, but because that's what other people put on it. Right. If, if I had been presented dress as just another piece of clothing, I think it would have been fine. Um, and there were times that I wore dresses in my early, early childhood. I think before I discovered that dress equaled woman, um, that it was okay, but when I learned that dress equaled woman and other people would then shove me into this box where I could no longer be myself, 
it was so uncomfortable. Um, I, I don't think I had this specific awareness then, though. The, the awareness at the time was this is world ending. I can't do this. I won't do this. Um, I will do anything to not do this. Um, and sometimes I wouldn't go to the event. Sometimes we, I would put on the dress and be miserable the whole time. Sometimes I'd put on a, a, um, some kind of compromise, which was usually some sort of like blouse and pants. But I always felt outside of myself. Um, so when you ask about, you know, what, what sort of childhood connections do I have, the times I remember feeling most connected were, was, was more free, freeing times, right? Um, and aside from those fancy moments, my parents didn't impose gender roles on me for the most part, and I was allowed to just be. Um, and I think that was really empowering and, and really joyful in moments. When you think about eight-year-old Skylar now... What would you tell them? I actually wrote, I was trying to find it. Um, I, I actually wrote him a poem. Um, people asked me that a lot when I was first coming out. I, I don't know why, um, but I, I wrote, I want to see if I can find it. I wrote a little poem to um, to him, and it basically says, like, hey, you, you actually do know yourself. Um, and I think that as I got older, people taught me who they wanted me to be right? Uh, and who they thought I should be instead of letting me just be myself. And I think I learned to be a different version of myself for other people as opposed to just being who I was and, 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 and as a result doubted myself. And so if I could go back and mm -hmm. talk to eight-year-old Skylar, I'd tell him, hey, you, you got it. You already know who you are. And other people are going to try to trick you and gaslight you and, and tell you who you should be and who they think you are and who they want you to be, actually. Um, and you don't have to listen to them. Mm. I think the conversation around awareness is so important because one of the common points of conversation when it comes to trans people is trans kids and young kids making the decisions to transition or having these conversations with their parents or their doctors if they're sure. ready to embark on the transition and the outsider question is like well how do they know how do they know like it are like how do kids know yet and then when you talk to someone like you who has these visceral memories of knowing who you were and fighting for that even if you didn't have the language for it it reminds us that kids always know who they are like kids always yeah. innately know that but as an advocate now, how, how should parents, teachers, doctors, when approached with this, I mean, and it is like, it is a hard conversation to have, or it is a hard moment in life to have. Um, anytime anybody is like approaching a new sense of identity and having to go through like reckoning with who they are now and moving to who they, they want to be or who they know they are. What are the missing questions? What are the missing conversations? And like, how do you um, essentially give grace and compassion to the people involved? I think it's a really good question. And, and I think I want to highlight one of the things you said, which is that 
kids do know who they are a lot of the time. And, and that doesn't mean that they know what job they want to have when they grow up. That doesn't mean they know what they want to have for dinner tomorrow. <laughs> that doesn't mean that they know that they want this, this you know, toy versus that. Those are all decisions. But who we are is, is not a decision. And I really want to enforce that or reinforce that because I think the, the, the primary thing I hear when we talk about kids and, and transness is, oh, they can't make this decision that young. Right? And the mm-hmm. first thing I always say is being trans is not a decision. Choosing to tell you about it is, and it's a very courageous decision for a child to tell you, hey, this is who I am, especially in a world that teaches us that we're not supposed to. So um, the decisions here are about courage, right? Uh, about um, choosing oneself. Uh, it's about choosing happiness, authenticity, um, and choosing also to trust a parent. I think parents often miss that. Um, mm. All of the arguments that I that I hear that are about brains are also not correct. A lot of people will try to use an argument that says, oh, you know, this person's brain isn't mature yet. They can't, quote, make these decisions. Again, the decision thing comes up. And I want to remind people that when they're talking about mature brains, I, I come, from, come from a cognitive neuroscience background, uh, people are usually talking about the prefrontal cortex, which is the part that, you know, makes executive decisions and also the part that is really good at inhibition. That's a primary function. As we get older, we get better at inhibiting things that, you know, break social rules, right? And that's really good in a lot of ways because sociality and adapting to social rules is really important for, for humans in a lot of ways. But we mm-hmm. also learn how to inhibit who we are, especially if who we are breaks a social rule, right? So actually, as we get older, I think we get worse at being ourselves or being true to ourselves, especially if we are trans or anything else that disrupts the norm, right? Um, because we, we actually grow the neurological structures and those neurological structures mature to allow us to inhibit ourselves. Whereas when we're kids, we only are ourselves, right? And actually, I, gender identity solidifies around the ages of three to five years old, according to the Mayo Clinic and many other esteemed uh, uh, um, and respected medical sources. So we can actually know, like I'm talking neurologically speaking, know our gender identity from a young age. That's actually the first thing I tell parents when we're trying to develop compassion, when we're trying to accept uh, and walk into these journeys with trans kids together. The first thing I start with is just science because people don't have it usually. They've got a lot of misinformation um, and some disinformation as well. Then I think it's about also letting the kid lead the way. You said what questions can we ask, what conversations can we bring into these moments? And I actually think it's all about letting the kid lead the way hey, how can I support you best? I know you know yourself. How can I learn you too, right? And a lot of parents have this idea that they know their kid better than their kid knows themselves. And they might know certain things better, right? They might actually know what the kid wants for dinner before the kid does or um, what class might be a you know better choice for them. But they don't actually know who that kid is in their core of their being better than the kid does. The kid might not be able to articulate it yet, but they have that, fe- that feeling. Nobody else is inside feeling them themselves, right? So I think that that understanding, that grace that we give the child will actually translate into more compassion and grace just in, for everybody involved. Does that make any sense? That makes, that's so clear. And thank you so much for sharing that so clearly. It's so helpful. And I'm still thinking of eight-year-old Skylar now and how eight-year-old Skylar knew himself before eight years old? I don't know. I I don't know when exactly, you know, it's hard to put a number on it. Um, I would say that I, that I started 
thinking about my gender probably from first grade onwards. And mm. I, I wasn't thinking about it in the language that I have now because I had none of the language that I have now. But I remember thinking constantly, I want to be a boy. Why, why am I not, you know, like the other boys? Why am I, why do I feel so not like the other girls? Um, I actually don't know if there was so much curiosity about it. I remember so clearly um, wondering when I would grow up to be like my dad, um, wondering when I would be more like my brother. I have a younger brother and, and I would just, I was like, okay, at some point I'm going to, I'm, that's going to kick in too. I'm going to be like them too. Um, and it, at some point ended up being 19 when I figured myself out. But, um, but I had this such a, such a clear picture as a child that I would grow up to be a father, that I would grow up mm. and be more like my brother, that one day somebody would like my body would, would become more like my brothers. And, um, and I don't really, wow. I can't really explain that feeling any more than, than that was the core of my transness at the time and, and the best way I knew to understand it. So then when you realized your body was not becoming like your dad or your brother and you were going through puberty, what, where was your head at? Where was your heart at? Like how, how did you reckon with like the mind body disconnect at the time? I think I did. I didn't, to be honest with you. I really, really struggled in high school. Um, I began struggling with an eating disorder when I was midway through high school, and um, and I think that was largely a result of my disconnection with my body and my um, mm. lack of access to language and resources to describe what that disconnection was like. Um, I, my body began changing later than the average person because I was an athlete and you know sometimes that can delay puberty um, so I didn't really start changing until 14 or 15 um, and up until that point I was terrified of puberty I was like in my head I was like I can make it stop it's gonna stop I'm not gonna go through it um, I have such a clear memory of when my mom told me that one day I was gonna grow up and like have hips like my grandmother and that I was going to grow breasts and I was like no I will not <laughs> um, which doesn't make any sense biologically speaking of course I was going to do those things, but um, but I remember being so opposed to it, and I think I even told. Uh, it's funny because when I came out as trans, my aunt was like, "Oh, I I knew because when you were ten, you told me that you weren't going to grow boobs. You said that you didn't want that to happen." Um, and I was like, "Really? I said that to you?" And she was like, "Yeah, you did. We were on the swings in the backyard. You said that to me." And I was like, "That sounds like me." Um, so it was very it was very clear to me before puberty happened that that wasn't what I wanted, right? So when it started happening, I think there was this just like whole body dread, right? And when I say whole body, I mean dread at my body, but also dread in my body. Like I just felt like everything was wrong. Um, that was coupled with some like childhood trauma stuff and just like, you know, everybody's growing up and high school's hard and lots of other things. But I think the combination of all those things really, really dragged me to a dark place. Mm. Wow. There, there's such a, like a, a, you know, the common story of how during, you know, during anyone's puberty part of their life, like you have this disassociation with your body or you're examining your body differently sure. or you're trying to set it up against, you know, typical beauty standards and body standards and whatever it is but the, even the language and the imagery around that is so limited mm -hmm. that when we learn about body or body acceptance it's still I think and I'm, I'm like realizing this as I'm saying it it still seems like it's 
talked about within such a binary mm-hmm. and maybe still pretty I don't know surface like even okay so I'm just going to share how I'm thinking so sure when you shared that about struggling with an eating disorder which like is a really hard and unfortunately common thing for sure girls of that age to like go through we often like limit that conversation or limit that problem quote unquote to like well we just want to look a type of way or we want to look like a specific image or we want to whatever and then when you delve deeper into it it's like So many of us are taught to become smaller, to take up less space or want to be invisible or like be less of ourselves that um, that we are completely disassociated. Like our minds are completely just like not there and not connected. And can you speak to just like when you felt that disconnection and I'm thinking about it in the times that I have felt disconnected and outside of my body. Can you speak to like what your inner dialogue was and if you knew, like if it was clear or if you had to do that work now, older Mm. and more healed to be able to, you know, speak to that younger version of yourself. Like do, and are some of those connections still disconnected? Like, are we still forever Mm. working on this? Mm. Well, to answer your most recent question, yes, I think we're forever working on this. I think that, um, growing into oneself is a, is a, I hope a lifelong process because even, you know, it's kind of like playing catch up, right? I'm always going to something's going to move mm. quicker than something else, right? Maybe my brain moves quicker, my body moves quicker. You've probably heard about the book that my body keep or the body keeps the score. But the right? body keeps the like, score, yeah. Exactly, and and I think like the body keeps the score, but so does the mind, right? And so I think it's kind of always catching up and healing and evolving and uh, and moving through life. And I I hope that I'm always playing that kind of catch up to some degree or. Um, evolving that's probably a better word than catch up um but thinking about the disconnection i mean think you're absolutely right a lot of people assigned female at birth struggle with eating disorders trans people actually have the highest rate of eating disorders than any other demographic um some 13 percent of uh, women will struggle with an eating disorder at some point in their life and some 79 percent of trans masculine folks um struggle with an eating disorder at some point in their life so it's a it's a a massive um, is there more context to that when you say context, do you mean like, like is there more conversation around why the number is so starkingly high? Um, there's there are a couple books about it. Um, there there's the, the Clinician's Guide to Gender Informed Care um, by a couple trans uh, providers is a really great book. Um, I do a lot of work within the eating disorder community as somebody who struggled with one and uh, and I actually do a lot of education on, on gender informed care uh, so that's sort of where some of this background comes from um, the, the short of, of the story is that uh, when we feel disconnected from our bodies that increases Mm -hmm. all the risk factors for eating disorders, right? So um, having to ascribe to body standards, having to feel disconnected from other people, right? So social isolation is a primary eating disorder risk factor. Um, Having um, any kind of critical 
a critique about our bodies is, is a risk factor. Um, I could go through like lists and lists of things, but all of all of the things that are risk factors for eating disorders um, are, are heightened within trans people due to transphobia uh, and due to gender dysphoria. Um, gender dysphoria is the discomfort or the distress that arises from the incongruence between gender assigned at birth, so for me, female, uh, and then gender identity, so for me, male. Um, that incongruence uh, can produce pain and, and distress, and that's, that can sometimes be clinically significant, and it's called gender dysphoria. Um, I think these I increase, well, we know that these increase the risk factors for eating disorders, so that can increase the frequency of eating disorders. We also have to consider the, the impacts of transphobia, right? If we're consistently um, fighting a world that says there's something wrong with our bodies and with our identities and, and pathologizing who we are, that's going to also increase, increase the risk for mental illness in general and especially eating disorders when it can be so body-focused, right? Mm. The, the critiques and, and pain can be so body-focused. But I think I want to go back to one of the things you said, um, which is that the superficiality that we often perceive with regards to body image issues, it's often not truly a superficial reason, right? It's not usually that somebody yep. actually just hates their body and that's why yeah. they're, you know, struggling. It's usually something far deeper. Um, and so I think for a lot of people who struggle with eating disorders, we're often seen as like, oh, well, you just want to look a certain way. Oh, you just want to be skinny. Mm -hmm. Oh, you just want to be beautiful. Oh, whatever, whatever. And that, or we joke really about it case. and make it into like, a, it's people like do. something that yeah. it's not even seen as, I think we're still coming to a place where people are able to like recognize that, um, yeah that it's something that people are struggling with rather than like something that, you know, if the person quote looks a type of way, like we just look past why they might be looking a certain way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and so that, that kind of can play into the question about trans people as well. Um, that it's not just about how we look right. And a lot of people will think that, um, that transitions are only about, body parts, right? And, and sure, there are pieces, right, about body parts. So for example, I got top surgery, a mastectomy that was really important and it was about a body part, but it's about so much more than that. It's about me feeling congruent with my body, about me having agency over my body and my life and my gender and how I walk through the world, right? Um, so it's sort of more symbolic than anything. And I think it's very similar with a lot of eating disorder struggles that are related to body image, for example, they're more symbolic than anything. Mm. Um, so I don't think that was the, your question that you asked, but but that's relevant to to I guess the topic. Um, yeah, no, it is disconnection, but we can. Yeah, well, on. so th it's actually a perfect um, transition to the next part of what I wanted to talk about, which is one of the I mean the consistent part of your identity that you have had since you were young and um, still carry with you is that you've always been an athlete, and yeah. that is. I mean, in order to to be an athlete, the mind-body connection is massive. Yeah. And you are surrounded by coaches. You're competing with your, against yourself, especially as a swimmer. You're competing against other people. You have teammates. There's so much, um, like, reverence around how you use your body and – then there's everything that has to happen or goes on inside of your mind to make sure that you're connected to your body so that you can execute your sport. Mm -hmm. What has been your relationship? What was your relationship with swimming just growing up? And then as your identity shifted or you stepped into it, 
how did that change or how did it support you or hinder if it did? Sure. I think that the way I've described swimming for a long time is, is that it was, it was my everything, uh, especially in childhood, especially in high school when I began struggling swimming was, was the thing that I got up in the morning for. It was the thing I ate for. It was the thing that I trained for. It was the thing that I enjoyed, the thing that sometimes I hated. It, it was, it was everything. Um, I think swimming has saved my life in many points of my life because it was a thing that I turned to in, in misery and loneliness and purposelessness. Uh, one of the darkest times in my life was when I broke my back in high school, actually, and I was unable to swim um, for several months. And, and that was actually when my eating disorder really took hold of my life because I Whoa. was no longer able to use the, the primary thing that I, that I had. Um, so swimming was, like I said, everything for me in a, in a lot of ways. And it's um, interesting when you said the thing about mind-body connection, right? The sports depend on having a really great mind-body connection. They also ha- depend on the ability to control that connection and disconnect uh, in certain moments and to disconnect that mind-body connection. Because the point where you become an elite athlete is the point when you say, body, I'm not going to listen to you anymore. I'm actually going to ask you to do more than what you think you're capable of doing, right? You think you're tired now and you want to stop because you hurt. We actually have to disconnect from those signals right now and push forward, right? And that's when you go into being more of an elite athlete. Um, Well, where do you go when you disconnect? Yeah. um, I don't know. (laughs) Hopefully you're in some (laughs) kind of flow state. Can you like describe it? Yeah. Um, Is it flow state? Yeah. I think a lot of it is flow state, right? It's like I'm doing something I love that I feel really good in that um, that is that is I don't know the words that came to mind are sort of feeding my soul, if you will. Like it's something mm. that really feels connected, and I, I feel it, it's both the utmost connection while also disconnecting from some really important body signals of pain, right? Um, because I'm, I'm I feel so connected, I'm so in my body, and I'm using my body at its like highest level. And my body's also like, please stop, please stop, please stop, right? Because it hurts. Um, and I think it, it's this combination, right? It's a, it's a, it's an incredibly dialectic truth. Two things that seem to be conflicting are true at the same time, right? I'm both in a lot of physical pain, but also massively connected to my body in a way that's allowing me to utilize it to achieve this task that I want to achieve. Um, I think that's, I think that's a lot of flow state, honestly, especially athletic flow state, right? Maybe not so much artistic, like I don't know wow. if you're drawing, if you feel the same way, but. Well, and so when you tap into that flow state, when you're able to go into that flow state, did that function serve you at all during your transition, during the work that you do now? Like, do you have to coach yourself into pushing past the pain? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, yes, you learn how to, right? And you also have to learn, and this is part of, I think, my struggle actually in college was um, when do I push and when do I not? Because sometimes it's really important to push uh, and sometimes it's really important to listen and to rest. Uh, and it's really difficult to find that balance. Um, but, but I think for me in high school and in childhood, swimming was a place where I, where I also got to... Um, step out of my body, which is, I think is, is strange when you think about exactly what you said, mind-body connection being important. But when I, when I started swimming, I was no longer a body. I was no longer a gender. I was no longer a girl or a boy or this or that. I was, I was just swimming. And one of the things that's unique about swimming is that you don't really 
see a lot of other people. You're usually, if you're swimming correctly, you're staring at the bottom of the pool, keeping your head in line with your body. Um, and you don't even really see much of your body, right? It's not like in soccer where you can see your legs kicking around or you're in basketball and you can see your arms, you know, throwing a, a ball. You're really just looking in this. You're encapsulated in a cap. Your goggles are right here and you can really only see in front of you. And the, the thing you might see is the tips of your hands as you're swimming, right? So there's this this exit from body, this um, this ability to just be in action, right? When I was swimming, I was I was swimming, and that was it. Um, and I think this was a, a safe place for me to leave the world that I that I existed in all the other times where I had to be somebody that I wasn't, uh, where I was expected mm. to be somebody that I wasn't. A lot with regards to gender, but sometimes with regards to anything else that was stressing me out in my life. Um, and I think it's really paradoxical because swimming is the most gendered thing that I've ever done in my entire life. Everything else in my life is very co-ed and very, you know, d diverse. But swimming is this unique place where it is both the most gendered place, but also the place where I feel the least gendered. Hi there. If you find our work beneficial and you want to support how we build our company at your service, you can subscribe to my Patreon at patreon.com slash nor. It's usually personal writings, and as I build a community on there, hopefully more. Your support is how we build. I also curate a weekly newsletter of all the things I'm benefiting from and enjoying that week. Anything from what I'm reading, watching, listening, buying, and more. Like most things, I keep it personal. You can subscribe to it at nortagori.com newsletter. Now back to the story. So tell us then about your journey in getting accepted and brought on to the Harvard women's swimming team at first. And then, I mean, like when I think about your story and how you started college and you were brought onto the women's team and then you had the choice between either going to the men's team we're going to the women's team. Women's team where you knew you were probably going to crush it. You were like already crushing it. And the men's team where you were still going to crush it. But there were so many, there's so many more challenges. And you had like the competition was no longer the, t the competition that you were playing your entire life. The competition was really you. It was like, how am I going to choose me in this scenario? So, I mean, just the courage, like, how did you get it? <laughs> how did you get there? How did, how are you able to, how are you able to stand up for yourself? The answer is, is I think very simple in some ways, which is, is swimming. The reason that I was able to stand up for myself was because I really wanted to swim and I wanted to swim and not be miserable. I wanted to swim and be myself. I wanted to swim without barriers to my own authenticity and my own happiness. Um, and making that decision was probably the most difficult decision I have ever made in my life because up until that point, swimming was the only thing that I cared about in, in many ways, right? It was the only thing that I had worked for, that I had felt purposeful in, that I was passionate about, that it really felt like my life purpose in many yeah. ways. Well, and so say, what were the conversations you were having like with yourself and with your family at the time to be able to essentially risk the thing that was most important to you? There were, there was a lot of conversations uh, and they went, you know, one day I'd be like, I'm sure I'm going to swim for the men's team. The next day I'd be like, I'm sure I'm going to swim for the women's team. And it went back and forth and back and forth. Um, one of the, I think the most 
meaningful conversations I had was with my dad. Um, and we sat down and he said, Skylar, because at this point I had been like, I'm going to swim for the women's team. I want to, you know, I want to do really well. I'm going to get on that record board. I'm going to go to nationals. Maybe I'll go to Olympic trials. Who knows? Like, I'm going to do that and then I'll transition. Um, and I'm going to do all this, you know, success as, as, a, as a female, female athlete and then I'll move on. My dad said to me, okay, Skylar, you have spent the last year um, in mental health treatment. At the time, I'd taken a gap year and I had gone to a treatment center for my eating disorder because I had been struggling so much. Um, and he said, you've told me that none of the things you achieved have meant anything to you. You have already made a national age group record. You have already gotten recruited to Harvard for this. You've already been you know, top 20 in the country on, on what you're doing. You've already done all these things and you tell me that you're proud of them, but they don't mean a whole lot to you because you weren't you. So who's to say that now you go to Harvard and you get on the women's record board or you go to women's nationals or you go to women's Olympic trials or you know maybe you even set an, a women's record of some kind. What is that gonna matter to you if you're not you, is it? Um, and I really thought about it and I was like, gosh, I have done all of these you know, check boxes, if you will, of success things that people would say, hey, Scott, you've, you've done it, right? And where has it gotten me? I'm sitting in a treatment center, probably at one of the lowest points in my life, super depressed, struggling with an eating disorder that you know almost took my life, um, suicidal a lot of times during that time, right? It brought me nothing, right? A bunch of numbers on a piece of paper, but that's it. Um, and that was really, I think, the moment where I, I started considering what it would mean to take a risk for my happiness as opposed to... Um, staying comfortable for some kind of outward success. Wow. Your dad knew what to say. He did. <laughs> um, and I think that that's the other thing. So I said the, the, the thing that allowed me the courage was swimming. And, and then the, the, the follow-up to that is that I, I have a massive privilege of support from people around me. Um, my parents were supportive of, of, of my identity. Um, they struggled. And, I, and we can talk more about that if you'd like. But, but overall, I never felt a fault of love from them. And that's a massive privilege, um, yeah. unfortunately. It, wow. should be, it should be an expectation, of course. But it, it's, a, it's a privilege right of now. Of course. Um, well, I would love so. to talk about that because I think that, you know, and I hope that to whoever is listening who is having these conversations, like we're all growing, we're all evolving, we're all learning, which is why it's so important to have that grace and compassion for ourselves and know that like everyone is going through their own human experience and it's not gonna look exactly like yours, but there are gonna be people that you really love who are going through a different, completely different experience than you and are going to need you as a part of that support system. So, I mean, I saw like your parents' faces in your Ellen interview with your brother and like just the joy and the pride. And I'd love for you to share about just like, how your parents were through all of this sure. and how they came to the place that they were able to like exemplify that pride mm. when you are sharing your story so openly, not just about being trans, but also just every aspect of your story you have mm. shared pretty publicly that yeah. 
touches so many people regardless of their gender identity. Sure. Um, yeah. So I think my parents have, as I said, uh, always shown me love. And I think that uh, I, I never want to understate that because I think while it is, I think, a parent's only responsibility, a lot of parents fail at that. A lot of parents have conditional love and they will not love their kid if they're trans. They will not show their kid love if they're queer or they're th this or they're that. Um, and my parents never faltered in showing me love. I never felt like I didn't belong at home. I never felt like I would be, you know, shamed for my identity. I never felt like they would kick me out or, you know, financially cut me off or something. And I, I say all of these things because all of these things happen to trans people a lot. Um, and so it's a, it's an absolute privilege that they loved me, did not cut me out, did not throw me out, all those kinds of things. I always have this heaviness and frustration when I say that sentence, it's a privilege because it, it should not be a privilege that we should not have trans kids who are feared, who are fearing, um, their their livelihood because they are they are trans and and you know their parental connection their love all that kind of stuff but but we but that's the the world we're living in right now so I I want to make sure that I name that that privilege, um, my parents struggled to understand as I came out I think that they were always of the mind of like we'll figure this out together we love you it's gonna be fine, um, but they resisted my transition in many ways my mom did not want me to have top surgery my dad was very confused as to why I needed it both of them were resistant to testosterone because they weren't sure. Um, whether or not that was the right decision for me. Uh, and this led to a lot of difficulty my first year in my coming out. Um, and I, I, I have a lot of compassion for it, why it was difficult for them. And I feel very little resentment now, but it was absolutely difficult for me at the time. Um, and, and it culminated, I think the, the disconnection culminated in a point where it was actually a screaming fight with my dad. And I don't recommend the screaming, but I want to share the contents, um, which is that he said to me repeatedly, I don't understand why you have to get top surgery. I don't understand. I don't understand. And I screamed back at him because I was at my wit's end at the point. And I said, you don't have to understand. I'm not asking you to understand. I'm just asking for you to walk through this with me. You need to trust me. Um, and I don't know if I got through in that moment, <laughs> but eventually I did because my dad actually accompanied me um, to top surgery and, and went with me and supported me through the whole thing. And that was lovely. Um, and I think that moment was really important, though, because I think a lot of parents and a lot of people think that they have to understand somebody in order to love them, that they have to understand, you know, every nitty gritty detail about something in order to respect somebody or for it to be real. Uh, and the reality is you absolutely do not have to understand anyone in order for their experience to be valid, first of all, nor do you need to understand somebody in order to respect them. Um, and I think once that was communicated to my parents and once they really digested it, they actually had more space to love me and more space to meet me where I needed to be met uh, instead of trying to figure it all out, right? Um, and I think it was a massive leap of faith. So the compassion I have for them is they had to take this leap of faith and say, I'm going to trust you, Skylar. And to be honest, right, they, they didn't trust me at the time because I'd just gotten out of a mental health residential treatment center and they were like, I don't know how to trust you in this space. And all of my treatment providers at the time actually kind of piled on. They were like, we, we think this is too soon. Like, you don't know who you are. Like, you can't do this. So I had a lot of medical resistance as well from my treatment team um, at the eating disorder center, um, to which I feel exactly no resentment still because I, they were all following the book at the time that they didn't know any better. Um, 
They've actually since apologized to me, which was kind of lovely. But my point is that a lot of people were reinforcing this idea that I couldn't know myself. That it was not possible for me to be able to be this sure at the time and to um, to make these you know life altering quote unquote life altering decisions at the time. And I knew very well this is what I needed, and that the life altering decision that I had made was to finally get the courage and the language to describe how I'd always been feeling. It wasn't something mm. that I'd just come up with that summer, right? It was something that I'd finally found the language to describe my history and my present with. Um, so once I got them to, to kind of sign on to trusting me, right, take this leap of faith and say, okay, fine, Skylar, I'll go with you. I'll trust you. I hope you know what you're doing, right? Um, I think that, that everything shifted in a really beautiful way from there. Wow. Did you feel like after the surgery, you, you, like a lot of the puzzle plate, puzzle pieces fell into place that you were looking for? Like, did it give you the, some of the answers that you were trying to Mm. figure out at the time? I don't think that I was looking for answers through top surgery. I think that, um, I, the answer was actually figuring out that I, needed top surgery and that I wanted top surgery. Um, and once I, I found that answer, that that was what I needed, if that makes sense. Right. And I actually tell people now that I think we can glean a lot of peace simply from knowing it what it is that we need and not actually getting mm. it yet because knowing what we need is actually, I think, so much more of the journey than actually getting it. Once we know what we need, we, we can know that we will eventually get it. I don't know if that makes sense. It's funny you say that about the most clear things that you've said. It makes total sense. I think that okay, that's a I'm very um, a beautiful way of putting it too because, I mean, that just applies to all of us. Like when we actually sit down with what and figure out what we know we need, oftentimes we're just like running to it, to something and then off, mm-hmm. and then hitting walls because we right. never really sat with that level of understanding yeah and you've gone on this journey is... with like mm-hmm. go ahead sorry sorry go ahead no please I was just gonna say I think I think that that sitting with figuring it out is, is something a lot of people don't do and I think the reason we don't do it is because um we're taught that not knowing we're taught that that discomfort we're taught that that chaos is bad and I think one of the things I learned in therapy was that it was okay to, to sit and learn to sit and figure out um, and, and I, I, I think that's so important and I, I fail at doing that sometimes now. We're like, no, I got to do the thing. I got to do the thing. But I think if mm-hmm. we take a step back and remind ourselves, like, it's okay not to know what I need. It's okay not to, to actually be sure of who I am or, or to have the right way to explain everything. It's okay to live in this chaos because this chaos is actually everywhere and everything that I need to figure it out. And I think we grow up in, in, in a society and with usually parents and so homes, childhoods that, that, um, really negatively appraise, um, chaos. They say chaos is bad. Chaos is bad. Not knowing is bad, right? Discomfort of incongruence is bad. Everything's, this is all bad. And so let's just, let's just get out of it as quick as possible. Instead of being like, Hey, no, sit here, be in that chaos. Don't know who you are. Don't know what you want and let yourself figure it out. And I think that peace Mm. is so important. One part of that peace is processing and moving through grief. And something beautiful that you've said is that grief does not preclude joy. 
And that's so powerful because oftentimes we look at grief as a binary. Like if you're experiencing Mm -hmm. grief, then that is like what you're going through. If you're experiencing joy, then it is without that. So what role did grief play in this process for you and for your family? Yeah. Well, I, I, I think grief is so important and I think that I have grieved, actually, I'll start with my parents. My parents, and I, I think especially my mom, through conversations with both my parents, what I what I have gleaned is that my mom really had to grieve the daughter she thought she had. And I think a lot of people feel when their kid transitions that they lose some part of their kid. Um, what, what I believe is actually happening is they're losing what they thought they had, right? And it's all about sort of this conception. And we, we often place these expectations on who people are to us, and we don't always walk into who these people truly are. And so I think my mom was very, which isn't, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just how, I think it's how people work, where we you know expect people to be X, Y, and Z, and sometimes they're not. Um, and I think actually this is a very human thing to have people not meet your expectations of who you thought they were, right, in many different ways. Of course. And I think my, my mom grieved, you know, that I was going to not no longer be daughter, that I was no longer going to grow up to be a mother, that I was no longer going to be a, a bride at some point, a, a, you know, a sister to my brother, all these things. I think there was a lot of grief in, in what that meant to her, um, especially early on. And I think um, one of the things she said is, is you know, that, that grief was difficult, but um, she said, I will always choose my alive child in whatever form um, over having a dead daughter. And the reason that she phrased it that way is because when I was presenting as female, when I was living my life before my transition, I was I was close to the edge. I was not wanting to stay in the world a lot of the time. I was struggling a lot of suicidality and, and suicidal ideation. And for her, her, her thought process was I choose, I choose to force my quote unquote daughter to stay in daughterhood and I lose, I lose my child altogether or I let my child thrive as who he truly is, and I and I have an alive child. Um, wow. And I think a lot of parents don't think about it with that kind of depth, but they, they should, because up to 41% of trans kids attempt a, a, and actually succeed in, in, in suicide, right? Um, that's, a, that's a staggering statistic, 40, 41%. And a lot of it is is easily remedied by parents accepting their kids. It's not about the world accepting their kids. It's literally the parent. The parent rejecting the kid can increase suicidality by two and a half times, substance abuse by three and a half times, and many other mental illness. Um, just having one supportive parent reduces that risk factor of suicide. So when parents reject their kids, they're actively contributing to that suicidality, right? Um, and I think that my mom understood that. I don't know why or how, because I, I didn't talk to her like this then, <laughs> um, but but she understood that that's risk. That's that mother I think, touch. Like, <laughs> that's just like that One intuition. would hope it would be that for everybody, but it's, unfortunately, yeah. it's, it's no, absent course. from a lot of parenting. So um, the grief, I think, there was grieving, again, who she thought I was um, and, and the womanhood specifically that she thought I would grow up to hold. Um, I think my brother deeply grieved what it meant to have a sister, and I think especially as he worked through his own masculinity, I think there's a lot there for him as well, and I, I don't want to say more because I don't want to speak for him. Um, but I think that for me, I also, and, and this is why I've had so much compassion for my my, my family grieving the womanhood that, that they thought I would hold, is I had to grieve the womanhood I thought I was supposed to, to have. I had to grieve the woman I thought I was supposed to be because for my whole life, despite knowing that I wasn't a girl or a woman, 
I still thought for 18 years of my life that I was going to grow up to be this woman. Right, and that I was going to grow up to to fill this role as woman in the world, um, and I had to grieve not doing that. A lot of swimming grief too, right? Grieving what I what I could have achieved as as a woman in swimming, right? What I could have achieved, um, you know, in my sport and um, on my swim team and on Harvard women's swim team, right? There's there's so much there. I grieve the women's swim team. I grieve that even throughout college, because I was they were there, and I was like, gosh, I, I sometimes I wish I could swim with you guys, right? Um, so there's a lot of grief, and I think the grief, what I've learned actually, is that grief is, is pretty constant. And um, I think I used to see that as a bad thing. And to, to the quote that you pointed out, grief does not preclude joy. I think when I was a kid, I saw grief as, um, as this thing that happened after people died that you had to get over and get through. Um, and my last year in college, actually a week before my, my final swim meet, my, my grandparents on my dad's side died. And... Um, and I, and I felt this just heart-wrenching grief and, and somehow it got all wound up with everything, with swimming, swimming ending, with a breakup I was going through, with um, college, you know, impending ending soon as well. And then my grandparents dying, everything felt like an ending. And I, and I, as I worked through it, the grief didn't like go away. It, it didn't, you know, fizzle and, and disappear. I feel like I still carry that grief of my grandparents' death with me, the grief of swimming ending with me. But it's it just added more color to my life, and I want to hold that grief actually alongside the joy. I feel like it makes it richer. I don't know how else to explain mm. it. I think grief makes life richer, and I think when we invite grief in, we're able to live a so much more um, wholesome life uh, than when we 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 try to shut it out or put it in a closet. Wow, that's such a great reframe to grief. And um, actually, on the last season of the podcast we um I spoke to Anna Shinoda about grief and she taught me about little griefs and big griefs and how the little griefs throughout our life essentially train us to be able to move through the big griefs and that it's not always equated to death like grief is any type of loss that you feel and that it doesn't have to be looked at completely as a loss, but you're right. It can be something that enriches the rest of your life. I remember when a friend of mine lost her partner tragically, suddenly in an accident. Um, the first time I saw her, we were sitting in the car and we were talking about it and she was looking up at the trees and she just said, like the trees have never looked greener and the sky has never looked bluer. Mm. And it really changed how I like, how I saw grief because even though she had lost a part of herself in that process she gained vision that was stemmed from divine like it was so much bigger than just looking at the green and looking at it and being like that is green it was like there's almost an intimacy with life around you because mm -hmm. you know loss yeah Totally. I mean, I think it's, it's, that's so beautiful. I, I teared up as I listened. I think that, um, it's, it's exactly what I, what I was, you know, what I feel about grief is it, mm. it adds color, right? It adds depth. It adds, um, dimension to, to life. And I, I, I used to see it as this like, 
oh, if you don't have the high, if you don't have the lows, you can't have the highs. And I think that's even a binary way to look at it. I think it's so much more yeah. complex and nuanced and, and um, totally. complicated than that. So yeah, I, I think grief is so important. And I think we don't live in a society that grieves. I don't think we um, are taught how to grieve. I don't think we are invited to grieve. There, there are societies where wailing after death is like a thing that everybody does together. Mm. It's a collective crying. And we don't do that. There, there's no, there's no <laughs> process of that in, in right. at least not that I know of as a, as a, you know, American society. Um, you know, so I think that's actually such a, um, devastating part of, of culture that, that I grew up in that, that doesn't grieve, right? That doesn't give space for that and doesn't allow it to be a beautiful um, community-driven process. I mean, you've probably heard of sitting shiva, right? A, a Jewish culture process. There is something really important about that, about being in community with each other, about eating food together, about grieving together. Um, there's a reason it's a certain amount of days long. You need time to process that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just wish that more societies, uh, especially the, you know, the one we live in now, would have more space for that. Yeah. That's such a, that's so beautiful. Like, it's such a beautiful reminder. And it's a great reminder to have, I think, when you are fighting the fight. And there are so many fights still to be fought and that are continuing to be fought and that have been fought for a very long time. One of them, of course, as your experience being an athlete is when there is proposed legislation that is anti-trans when it comes to athletics, when it comes to children and so much more. And I just want you to spend time, if you could please, to just clarify and give context to some of the conversations around proposed legislation when it comes up or rulings that happen even on a local level. Sure, yeah. So over the past year, we've seen over 100 anti-trans pieces of legislation around the country. Um, About 70% of them are uh, specifically focused on trans kids in sports, and the other 30 or 35% of them are focused uh, in trans kids in healthcare. The key word in both of these things are kids. Right. These are all about kids. Uh, and to me, that makes it all the more devastating because kids already don't have a whole lot of agency over what they do in their lives. Um, most kids don't do a whole lot more other than play sports, go to school, hang out with their friends, and go to the doctor. Right? It, that, that's really a lot of childhood. Um, and so right now, people are basically criminalizing two main facets of children's life, being able to get health care. Um, and being able to play sports with your friends. Uh, I think that most people get really hyped up about trans kids or trans people specifically in sports. And that's the reason we're seeing all of these legislative bills, over 68 actually anti-trans sports bills specifically proposed in about 30 states, which is ridiculous. Why do we, there's more than one bill per state even, which is just shows you the transphobia, right? Um, people often, shift to talking about professional level sports whenever they talk about this. They'll be like, well, you know, in the Olympics, like we don't want to have trans people dominating the Olympics, right? And there's so many things wrong with this statement when we're talking about 
the bills that are in this country. One, we're not talking about the Olympics. We actually are not talking about any professional level sport. We're not talking about the NCAA. We're not talking about college level sports. We're not talking about elite level sports. We're talking about children who play sports at school. And why do they play sports? We're talking about like eight-year-old Johnny who wants to play with his friend's basketball team, right? We're talking about Victoria who's 11 and wants to play volleyball with her friends. We are not talking about Olympic level athletes. At the Olympic level, there are actually regulations in place to make sure that trans people who are participating are participating in a fair manner with their hormones regulated. Um, same at the NCAA, same at professional level sports. At elite level sports, there are already rules, but we're talking about kids. And most kids also haven't even gone through puberty, right? Most kids, there are no biological differences to speak of except for the presence or absence of a penis. I don't know about you, but most people I know don't play sports with their penis, right? If they do, that's a different problem we're having. So <laughs> people get really amped up about fairness in sports for children, but the reality is the kids are playing sports to have fun because it's a really important part of development, because it teaches them tenacity, it gives them a, you know, an outlet, uh, it teaches them what team, teammates are and team looks like and, and cooperation and collaboration. It teaches you really important life lessons that you will not learn in school. Uh, and we are trying to rob trans kids of that by putting these legislation um, in place. So there's a lot going on and I could talk for hours about it, but in, in short, um, these bills are transphobic, they're misogynist, they're sexist, they're trying to specifically indicate what a girl's body can look like in order to compete in, in girls' sport, which is so many versions of sexist uh, and misogynist and racist as well. This disproportionately affects black girls and brown girls who are already policed in how their bodies are allowed to look um, due to white supremacy. And so there, there's so much going on here, um, but none of it is actually about fairness. It's all using mm -hmm. trans people as a as a scapegoat for uh, for hatred. How does transphobia power. affect all of us? Great question. It first of all, it does. And for everybody wondering if it if it doesn't, it, it transphobia affects everybody. Transphobia is rooted in the patriarchy. Transphobia is rooted in gender binary. It's rooted in 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 trying to exert power over people. Right. Um, transphobia can trickle down to um, thinking about gender roles, right? Oh, girls have to be this way, boys have to be that way. That hurts everybody because these are very harmful and limiting stereotypes of how a person can be. Um, to me, transphobia is 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 inherently woven into toxic masculinity. Uh, the ideals that people have a lot of times about men having to be sort of quote traditional in being stoic, being emotionless, being sort of rocks that don't have any kind of um, sensitivity of any kind um, that are that are not able to be in touch with with um, who they are in many ways. Toxic masculinity hurts everybody uh, and actually especially can hurt cis straight men because it says, hey, don't be yourself. Don't have emotions. Boys don't cry, quote unquote. Um, you know, man up, grow a pair, all these kinds of things. These are inherently, um, well, insidiously toxic to everybody, but even the, the cishet men that that perpetuate these things, right? Um, and we teach boys from a very young age that they shouldn't show emotion, that the only thing they can show is anger, that they shouldn't hug their friends, that they shouldn't say, I love you, that they should be, you know, this, that, and the other, and that actually harms them, and then they then go and harm other people. Um, that is about transphobia, too. Most people who, most trans people who are killed are killed by cishet men, usually because there was some sort of threat to masculinity, right? A lot of trans women are killed by men who went on dates with them and then were angry to learn that this person is actually a trans woman. 
So there's a lot here, um, but it, it, it all, all these standards of, of gender, all these standards of how a person has to be in who their gender is, they harm everybody. It's not just trans people. Trans people just kind of take the brunt of it. Mm. Wow. Skylar, thank you so much. I would love to go into some not so rapid, rapid fire questions. Sure. That sounds good to me. First is what is a song that you are currently dancing to for joy? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'm going to embarrass myself, but I, for whatever reason, on my on-repeat thing on Spotify, um, has been uh, the song Space Cowboy by InSync, <laughs> which is, for whatever Amazing. reason, something I've been listening to recently. And I was listening to InSync me, literally so. two days ago. That's <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. I love Space Cowboy. <laughs> it's a ridiculous song. It makes absolutely no sense, but um, but I love it. That's also, I'm awesome. sorry if you could hear the dog barking in the background. It's to- we love some good gnat sound. Um, <laughs> what is a your like go to? You just finished swimming laps for a really long time, and you really want like your favorite snack. What is that snack? Mm, favorite snack. I mean, when I'm when I finish swimming, I usually try to eat something that's gonna make me feel good. But like my favorite snack, um, the first thing I thought of was pizza. I, I love pizza. Um, I love <laughs> any kind of Asian noodles. That's been my recent like craving. I've been on and just like nonstop craving like Chinese noodles, um, uh, usually spicy like Sichuan noodles. Um, yeah, I'll I'll leave it at those answers. And what is a message that you've gotten from a young trans person that has stuck with you or that you go back to as a reminder of why you do the work you do? Um, that's, that's, a, that's a deep one. A message I got. I, this has happened actually more times than I can count, which is bonkers to me, but um, I've ha- the most recent one I can remember is I, I was signing books at a store recently because I uh, for, for my, my new novel, and a kid came up to me so nervous um, and was asking me basically if, if – is asking me some questions about my experience and then said to me, listen, I it was really hard for me to come here because my parents aren't supportive of me and I don't know what to do. And, um, and seeing you just reminds me that trans people can be happy and trans people can become adults and trans people can have jobs. And I, I started crying. I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't like handle it. I just started bawling and I was like trying so hard to, I know I'm going to get emotional here too, but I was trying so hard to keep it together. And I was like, mm. I wanted to communicate to this kid that, that, that he absolutely has a future. Um, and it's one of the things that I think is so hard for trans people uh, and a lot of marginalized, marginalized people in general, but specifically for trans people as we're on this topic, that we don't see ourselves in the future, not only because of the potential suicidality that we experience, like literally not being able to bring ourselves into the future, but we literally don't see trans adults. We're not seeing people in jobs. We're not seeing people with lives. We're not seeing people with partners. Um, and, and I'm only 25 years old, but people... Um, I've become a trans elder to some degree. Mm-hmm. And when I say elder, I, I, it's, it's a word that I use to describe, you know, people who are 
beyond you in life to some degree, right? Yeah, and, and I not, mean, I'm you've only old, you've but. been out less than ten years. Exactly. It feels like. Does it feel like a seven. whole lifetime? Seven years. Yeah, yeah. In some ways, um, I think it does. But um, it, it, you know, I looked to people who had only been out for two or three years when I was just out, and and so people look to me when they've just been out, and and I. I guess what I'm trying to say is the most powerful thing I've heard is that my existence publicly is is a reminder to other people that they too can exist. Um, and sometimes I get the message in a way that says, hey, Skylar, you saved my life because I saw that you existed. Sometimes it's just, hey, you, you reminded me people can be happy and all of it means mm. the world to me. Um, the most recent moment where I was on the flip side of that, I one of my friends is a, is a 42-year-old trans man and I went home and I like cried after I hung out with him. And it... it it wasn't because anything bad happened. It was because that that was to me seeing a trans elder. It was seeing somebody who's an adult who has walked through their life. Because in many ways, while I am an adult, technically I don't feel like an adult. I feel like a child in so many ways. And to sit and, and meet myself in the future, right? See a trans person of color who is, you know, 40 something years old and has his own life and has his own grounding. And, and I could feel that from him. I was like, gosh, like you remind me that that I'm going to exist also in 10 years from now, that I'm going to have a future 10 years from now. Um, and I think trans people desperately need those reminders. Wow. What is the world that you want to live in look like? Hmm. And we can even hyper-focus that, that into yeah. language. <laughs> like, what yeah. is the world that you speak in and listen and sound and feel like because right now there's so much conversation around language mm -hmm. and it's to catch people up so to speak or to evolve and sure. um what like in the in little Skylar's utopia what is that what does the role of language look like I think language is, I mean, the purpose of language to me is to communicate, right? Language is to say, this is who I am and let me learn who you are. And I think that if we can use language to do that, we can have so much more beauty and so much more peace and so much more connection between people, so much more reminders of our common humanity. Um, and I think that's the key, right? I want us to use language uh, as a tool to connect as opposed to a tool to divide as opposed to a tool to um to dehumanize right to weaponize and um i've been thinking a lot about how we communicate ourselves recently and and i think that, that you know i think a lot of conflict comes from specifically a place of not being able to communicate right communication faults and so the more we can see i think common humanity and other people um see other people as as their eight-year-old selves perhaps you know to, to almost like it, it, remember that we're all these little kids just trying to stumble through the world together i think um could help us really learn to communicate better with each other and um, and use use that language for communication as opposed to for division mm. and finally skylar what do you know for sure Pulling out all the hard questions. Um, the not so rapid, rapid fire. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
you know, it's funny you asking that question. Um, one of my grounding exercises that I do when I when I need a moment and I'm trying to, you know, journal, I, I usually start with with a list called Things I Know to Be True, um, which is a poem prompt that I learned from um, a, a poet I really like named Sarah Kay. Um, and um, I think one of the things I know to be true is I'm I'm here talking to you, Nora. Um, I know that I am feeling a lot. Um, I know that it's a beautiful fall day outside that I'm excited to enjoy. Um, I know that I have a lot to grieve, and I have I know I know I have a lot to give. Um, and I think mm. those two things are related. Um, and I know that I know that I deserve gentleness. I deserve space, um, and so do all other trans people. Skylar, I'm still thinking about eight-year-old Skylar after this entire conversation, and I would love if we could end on the words that you wrote for him. Sure, yeah. Um, okay, so this is, I wrote this in 2016, so I was 20 years old. Dear little Skylar, I want to go back and tell you everything will be okay, that you'll grow up to be exactly who you know you want to be. You'll grow up to be exactly who you are, that the terror and the pain you feel will fade. But you were never afraid of the waves. You must have known that things would get better because here we still stand, alive and better. So now I hear you shouting to me from the depths of my insides, my history, my soul, run to the waves, Skylar. The big ones, the little ones, the scary ones, the tiny ones, they're all different and fun in their own ways. Dive in. You're a strong swimmer. And yeah, sometimes you'll wind up with sand up your butt and it will really itch. And sometimes you'll get a mouthful of the ocean. But didn't mom always say gargling salt water was good for you? Mm. Anyway, the waves are kind and will always deliver you back to the shore. Be patient, be flexible, and smile. Dear anyone who doesn't think it can get any better, listen to the little kid you once were. Wow, I felt that. Thank you. I felt that. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. You know, what's so wild is less than a year ago, I wrote a poem while I was sitting on the beach listening to the waves, and it felt very similar. Like, mm-hmm. it, it spoke to the waves less violent and more as a mother carrying, essentially. Mm-hmm. And it was like, it's a, it's a reframe in itself to be able to see something so massive, so dark, so unknown, and then mm-hmm. trust that it'll carry you. Yeah. Well, I think that's how we could, one way to see life, you know, one way to see grief and life. And maybe yeah. there's no thing different between grief and life. Maybe they're all the same thing. Mm. And didn't mom always tell you that gargling salt water was good for you? That it is. Thank you so much, Skylar. This was so special. And I really appreciate your openness, your story, your truth, and for educating us constantly. Thank you, Nora. Thank you so much for making the space. And I know you said you you try to make a healing space, and I think you succeeded. So thank you so much. Thank you. You can get more Skylar on social media at Pink Manta Ray. That's P 
P-I-N-K-M-A-N-T-A-R-A-Y. And for more resources, you can visit pinkmantaray.com slash F-A-Q-S. As always, at your service.